informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. And welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Today is Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. The Feast of St. Luke the Evangelist. St. Luke the Evangelist. Someone many people don't really think about to pray to, right? It's not someone that many people are like, huh, that person's someone I should be spending some time. Speaking of saints who are unknown. He was born to pagan Greek parents in Antioch. But he was chosen by St. Paul as his companion in his travels, demonstrating exceptional qualities that were suitable for apostolic activities. He accompanied St. Paul to various places, including Macedonia, to Samanthrius, to Neopolis, to Philippi. Around 51 AD, St. Luke remained with St. Paul even during his imprisonment in Rome in 61 AD. St. Luke wrote one of the four Gospels, you know, the one that's titled The Gospel According to St. Luke. That, that's that one. who wrote it? Isn't that crazy? I know, oh. I know. Many people don't know that. What? He was aiming to attract the Gentiles to the mercy of the Lord, and he deeply understood the life of Christ, making him suitable for this task. Now, St. Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, providing the first historical account of the church's early days. His profound understanding of the nascent church was reflected in this work. Now, St. Luke was also a vessel of the Holy Ghost as evident in his his writings. He was inspired. He was one of the divinely inspired writers of Holy Writ. The Gospel of St. Luke and Acts of the Apostles carry the light of the Holy Ghost, reflecting St. Luke's soul. Now, one of the most amazing things about St. Luke was he was deeply devoted to Our Lady. In fact, he is credited with the first painting of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the one that is kept in the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. Although it is unlikely that Our Lady posed for him, it was more likely that he had seen her so many times that he just had her image imprinted into his mind. And he painted her image from his profound admiration and the glimpses of her physiognomy. And you can kind of see this when you look upon the image of Our Lady painted by St. Luke. Now, St. Luke's writings contain special characteristics that are unique to him. For instance, his devotion to Our Lady. You see that in the angel Gabriel appearing to Our Lady. His devotion to Our Lady in the depths of his understanding of Christ and the early church shine through his works. Now, St. Luke's extraordinary qualities and virtues are admired and revered. His life serves as a source of inspiration and admiration for his deep spirituality, understanding, and artistic contributions. St. Luke's work on paintings of the Blessed Virgin was likely blessed by our Lord from heaven with angels smiling upon his efforts to perfect the face of the queen of heaven and earth. Now, by admiring the soul of St. Luke, I believe that we can get a glimpse of those extraordinary qualities and virtues. So what do we ask for from St. Luke on this day? We ask for an ever-increasing devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, that our imagination and our memories be filled with the image of Of Our Lady and nothing else. St. Luke the Evangelist, pray Pray for for us. us. Uh, Joining us right now is Rudy Carlos. Good morning to you, Rudy. Good morning, Adrian. And uh, wow, I'm looking at this this painting by St. Luke, and I got to say, 
dear listener, I encourage you to look it up. I would throw it up on the screen right now, but it's uh, kind of – I think it's last minute for us to throw <laughs> it up. But uh, I want to say, you know, he's just uh, – there's something about St. Luke, especially his account of the gospel. It is uh, – I don't know. It's Maybe he was a melancholic or something, but he added such wonderful, uh, relatable things into into the scriptures there. But uh, wow. Yeah, St. Luke, one of the one of the big guns today. And uh today is, you know, we're uh we're doing a pre-record. So, uh we're doing things a little bit differently today. But uh, keep us in your prayers. We are in Birmingham and uh we're here for the radio conference. Amen. Amen. And now I did yeah, before we jump into the radio conference talk, I do want to talk about that too before we get going, but I just decided to pull up that image and you know, many many people may know it as the image of Our Lady Perpetual Help that uh, is a very common um, but it is uh, that same image, uh, Lady Perpetual Help. The other image that's very popular is Our Lady Chestahova. Those are the uh, the images that are kind of um, the same the same kind of image. In fact, some have actually said that all four of those images were painted by Saint Luke. Mm. All four icons. Now, some will say that only one of them was the case, and that would be the the. I think she's known as Our Lady of Vladimir, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the one that most people will consider to be authentic, but the it's debated among those among scholars. But I think they're. I mean, I I don't have a problem believing all four of them are painted by him. I, if I was if I was gazing upon Our Lady and had the artistic ability to paint, I would be wanting to paint her as often as I could. Now, before we jump into the show, I did want to bring up the fact that Rudy kind of just. Uh, said that a second ago. We are actually in Alabama, which is pretty cool because I've never been to Alabama before. And Same. as the recording of this, I've still never been to Alabama. But as you're hearing it, I'm currently in the great state of Alabama, which is pretty awesome. Um, Rudy, have you been to Alabama? Never. No, never. and I really want to go. So I'm excited. And uh, so we're going to be doing a pre-recorded show today, tomorrow, and Friday. That'll be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And we're going to have all new interviews for you every single day this week. Uh, but we are going to intersplice those all new interviews with some old of our some of our best of interviews that we've been d- done in the past. So you're going to want to make sure you're tuned in every single day because you will hear something new. And maybe you'll hear something new even if you are a regular listener because I know sometimes people uh, aren't able to hang around for the entirety of the shows. And so they miss some of our best interviews. So it's a great opportunity for us to give you a chance to hear that again. Now, coming up at 15 past the hour, Dan Snyder with his, is going to be on with us talking about spiritual warfare, talking about his book on spiritual warfare. At 30 past the hour, Cardinal Pisabala, he was the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, which I'm struggling to know, is he supposed to be called his eminence because he's just been appointed cardinal or his beatitude because he's a Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, which title comes first. I'm not sure, but we're going to be having him on at 30 past the hour talking about the state of Israel and Palestine. And in the next hour, can demons do miracles with Adam Bly? So all this is coming up in this show today. So make sure you're tuned in with us. There is going to be no fear and trembling game show this week, but make sure you keep our number so that you can join us for next week because our regularly scheduled fear and trembling game show will come back next week. So Make sure you're ready to jump into that next week. But God bless you. God love you. Keep us in your prayers. But let's begin in prayer. We're going to be praying for success at our radio conference, EWTN radio conference this week. Be praying for whatever it is that you have going on in your life this week. We pray for the salvation of souls, 
for the liberty and exaltation of Holy Mother Church, for our friends, family, and benefactors, and all those that we promise to pray for. And I ask in a special way for prayers for my grandfather. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. O Virgin Mary, grant that the recitation of thy rosary may be for me each day in the midst of my manifold duties, a bond of unity in my actions, a tribute of filial piety, a sweet refreshment, an encouragement to walk joyfully along the path of duty. Grant above all, O Virgin Mary, that the study of thy fifteen mysteries may form in my soul little by little a luminous atmosphere, pure, strengthening, and fragrant, which may penetrate my understanding, my will, my heart, my memory, my imagination, my whole being. So shall I acquire the habit of praying while I work without the aid of formal prayer, by interior acts of admiration and of supplication, or by aspirations of love. I ask this of thee, O Queen of the Holy Rosary, through St. Dominic, thy son of predilection, the renowned preacher of thy mysteries, and the faithful imitator of thy virtues. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now, your headline news with Rudy Carlos. Good morning. You're listening to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. And uh, here's a story for you today. Did you know that Miracles of the Eucharist is the theme for this year's International Week of Prayer and Fasting? This is an article out of the National Catholic Register. And they say that the 31st annual International Week of Prayer and Fasting for our nation, leaders and families, and the church will take place on October 20th through the 28th, beginning with a three-day virtual event and ending with a live full-day program at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. So if you're a D.C. listener, uh, make sure to go out there. That might be interesting. Now, in light of this year's theme, Miracles of the Eucharist, the conference will open with a recorded video presentation by the mother of Blessed Carlo Acutis, Antonia Salzano. Uh, Flynn explained more about the choice of this year's theme. He says, because... The Eucharist is the source and summit of the faith, bringing everyone back to the real presence and belief in the real presence is going to change our church and our culture. The Eucharist, along with prayer, especially the rosary, fasting, adoration, and the sacraments are the solution. Love that. The Eucharist will be the emphasis of the virtual talks beginning on Friday, the opening day, and continuing on Saturday and Monday, as well as the closing day's events at the Basilica. This year's International Week of Prayer and Fasting's five goals are prayer and fasting for the conversion of all people and nations, to build a culture of life, to defend the sanctity of marriage and family life, for peace and to implore God's mercy, for all priests, vocations, and holiness in the members of the church. I see all joining forces together because the times are very, very urgent. There seems to be a lot of division in our church, a lot of differences of opinion on certain moral issues compared to years before. There seems to be more of a divide, but the good news is our American bishops have come together and are really pushing forward on this Eucharistic revival and asking all the parishes to have more adoration, one of the organizers of the event said. Now those are, as well, I can't go into more breaking news because uh, we're not live right now and I... <laughs> Don't want to do that, but uh, that was an interesting story I wanted to bring to your attention. And may God bless all of your holy efforts today. Back to you, Adrian. 
Now, the gospel of the day comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. It's very fitting we read the gospel of Luke on the feast of St. Luke. And the passage here is about God's, our Lord sending out the apostles as lambs among wolves. I want to focus only on one verse, though, and only a section of one verse. Verse 1, he sent them two by two. We talked about this before, but it's worth going into further depth. Now, the instructions for the disciples to go out two by two carries profound significance in the context of their mission and the broader teaching of our Lord. Cornelius Lapide talks about this. Pairing was not a random assignment, but a deliberate strategy in demonstrating our Lord's understanding of human nature and the challenges of ministry and the importance of companionship in the spiritual journey. Now, many people may think, oh, yeah, that sounds really um, nice and calm and, and ooey-gooey, right? But no, our Lord is very practical here because he lists a number of things Cornelius Lapide does about why this is so important. The concept of two-by-two embodies mutual support and fellowship. In pairs, the disciples can lean on each other both emotionally and spiritually. The presence of a fellow disciple provided encouragement, strength, and a sense of camaraderie, especially in the face of potential challenges and rejection. When one felt weak, the other could offer support. When one faced doubt, the other can provide reassurance. This mutual reliance strengthened their resolve and prevented isolation fostering resilience in the face of adversary. Now, there are a number of other things we won't be able to get into, but I want to skip ahead and go to this one right here. It ensured accountability and shared responsibility. Being accountable to a companion meant that they could keep each other in check morally, ethically, and spiritually. In times of fatigue or frustration, having a partner meant there was someone to remind them of the purpose and their calling. This shared responsibility reduced the burden of each individual, making the mission more sustainable in the long run. And I think this is something that we can keep in mind in all areas of ministry. We have to find a companion. If we try to do it alone, we will be discouraged. If we try to do it alone, we will get exhausted. If we try to do it alone, we will fail. And if we are two by two, not only can it be an encouragement, not only can it be a strengthening, but it can also be an accountability. And in our modern world, it also provides us a witness, a witness to make sure we're not doing anything immoral. So that way we can make sure that we're not going to fall into immoral practices that then can get us in trouble with other things. And even if it's not immoral practices, but also the accusation of immoral practices, because many times you can be accused of immoral practices that you did not do. But having two by two prevents that from happening. It keeps everybody in check and a witness to make sure that someone's virtue is being witnessed to. We're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Dan Snyder about his book on spiritual warfare. We'll be right back with more Catholic Drive Time right after this. Hey, Donnie, what are the mysteries that we pray on the rosary? Glorious, luminous, joyful, and There you go. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. Have you ever heard someone say, We should not blame people for whatever bad things they may sometimes do. We should not judge them for their faults. 
We should be kind and merciful. Well, of course we should be kind and merciful. However, it is not merciful to say that we should not blame them for the sins they commit. As G.K. Chesterton says, blame is actually a compliment. It is a compliment because it is an appeal to a man's soul. When we call a man a coward, we are, in so doing, asking him how he can be a coward when he could be a hero. When we rebuke a man for being a sinner, we imply that he has the potential of being a saint. Want more than a minute? Visit our website, chesterton.org. Uh, joining us right now is Dr. Dan Snyder. He's an adjunct professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, who has been involved in teaching and evangelization in the Catholic Church for nearly 20 years. A former amateur boxer, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, and Gulf War veteran, Dan has also worked for many years in Catholic Apostolate of Deliverance and Exorcisms, both at the diocesan level and as a founding member of Liber Cristo, a movement in conjunction with Father Chad Ripperger, which provides tools and resources for priests and lady working in the Apostolate of Exorcism. Good morning to you, Dr. Dan. Good morning, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. It was very interesting. Uh, your book here, Libra Christo, uh, Christo, I thought it was very fascinating because I, I got a call from someone from TAN. They're like, oh, you might be interested in this book. And there's like a dozens of books on spiritual warfare. And so I was like, eh, no, I don't know. Not that interested. And I was looking into it and I was like, no, this is interesting. This is actually really interesting that this is a, seems a little bit different from a lot of other things that we've seen come out. Uh, so tell me about why you decided to produce this whenever we see like there are a dime a dozen of spiritual warfare books nowadays. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a big topic. There's a lot of curiosity out there uh, around there. So you mentioned uh, uh, Sister Lucia. I quote I quote an interview with her in the book. And when she one late in her life, she had, in an interview she said the battle with Satan in the in the future will be over the family, and we're in this we're in that time now. And so um, this is not just a compilation. I write not just as a scholar. I write I try to write with scholarly rigor. Um, uh, it's an imprimatur book. So, but also I write with the family in mind that the average Catholic can pick this book up. This isn't a compilation of the saints or what the Bible says about. I walk people through. Uh, um, the the really I take down and I condense Father Ripperger's work with uh, the science of mental health and Dominion, and I put it into a really a twelve step program of for for people to help uh, get free of any any evil influences. Uh, ultimately, it's just teaching people spiritual warfare is is not as 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 fancy and tricky as as people seem to think. It really is just what I would call smash mouth Catholicism, just grinding it out, living the Catholic faith. Uh, practicing the sacraments, prayer. Most people don't know how to pray. They don't pray at all. And so teaching people how to pray, teaching people uh, when to pray, uh, uh, the prayer discipline, uh, the sacraments, tapping into the sacraments, all these things are very, very critical for us to to, to defend ourselves and our families in, in these really, really interesting times that we live in. You know, okay, so that's very, I thought that was really, I think that's great. But at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, what's the purpose of this when your book opens up at the preface by Father Ripperger, and he says uh, that year we had 2,000 contacts. Uh, we discussed cases with over 600 people. 
We saw 150 people, and of those 150 people, only three were possessed. So if only three out of 2,000 people he was in contact with in a year were possessed, do we are we seeing that this is a necessity, or is this something more for things that are not necessarily possession, but other forms of demonic influence? So what what is the purpose of this book? Yeah, the purpose of the book is to lead people to 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 self deliver. Ultimately, that that is very giving. It's consistent with my own experience uh, as well, working with cases for the last ten years. That cases of possession are extremely rare, extremely rare. So, in, in father statistics, you're looking at a half of a percent. That means ninety nine. In, in a case of possession, um, that is usually uh, th- those are the trickiest. Those that require the full ecclesial authority of a mandated exorcist. Um, those take a lot of work, but but that means 99.5% of the cases of diabolic affliction can, can deliver through the ordinary means of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's what this book attempts to do, is to help that 99.5% uh, of, 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 of people that come to the church for help, and also to help uh, everybody else, anyone like you and I that just want to clean up uh, our spiritual lives. Ultimately, Adrian, ultimately what this is, is a deep, a long, deep dive into Catholic tradition that leads you both to learn how to pray and also to a general confession, to identify those areas in your life that, that you may have given permission to the evil one. You know, the scripture says that the devil stands before the throne of God day and night accusing the brethren. So systematically, one by one, I try to walk the reader through how to, how to, how to give back, take back those permissions and, and live, live in a state of grace. So that's a good point to bring up is the sacrament of confession. And I was actually just having a discussion yesterday about a general confession because there are many of us who have been have grown up Catholic and we may have been living as Catholics for decades, not knowing how to make a good confession because we just had such bad catechesis. And now we finally realize, oh, my goodness, have all my confessions for the last 20 years been invalid? And out of peace of mind, I would say, uh, well, maybe maybe talk to your priest about a general confession. And so what are your thoughts on the sacrament of confession related to spiritual warfare? And specifically, you mentioned a general confession. Yeah. So recently, Tan's got another book coming out on the uh, um, the, the official biography of, of uh, Father Gabriel Amorth. Father Ripperger also did the introduction for that. I did some of the, the um, um, content editing of it um, as well. And and. This is, and he's really the grandfather of this of this apostle, this ministry of exorcism in the modern age. He brought it back into the forefront at a time when it was really dismissed as something medieval, preconciliar, etc. He says that confession is much more powerful than exorcism. In confession, you take souls from Satan. In in in, in exorcism, you take bodies back. Because technically speaking, all that all the demon possesses is the body. Uh, the soul can be surrendered, but the, technically speaking, he possesses the body. And so he says one confession is worth worth 20 exorcisms, uh, one good confession. So it's very critical to, to, to understand the power of the, again, the ordinary means. And here's what I say in the book, that we fight an ancient enemy, and the ancient weapons are best. And so these ancient, part of these ancient weapons that we have at our disposal as Roman Catholics is the power of the sacrament of confessions. This is where we take souls back. This is where we, 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 we reclaim what belongs to Christ and give them back into the hands of God the Father. You know, it's interesting because in the sacrament of confession, without it, when we are in a state of mortal sin— uh, we are in the realm of the devil. We cannot merit anything. 
and our souls, our yeah. intellect is weakened, our will is weakened, our intellect is darkened. Uh, could you tell me about the effects of mortal sin and why, on top of the issue of spiritual warfare, why we need to get to confession? Yeah, so, you know, in the Catechism it says the effects of confession are twofold. It darkens the intellect and weakens the will. And we find this in cases of, of possession. Part of the, the development of the four-phase protocol, Father Ripperger, uh, and this is phase two of the four-phase protocol, um, is, is identifying those areas that are obstacles to grace and, and getting that soul meritorious. I would go into many, many sessions and I would, and we would prepare the person for, for exorcism. And, and, uh, I would ask the same question. So did you go to mass this weekend? Oh, no, the, the, the demon wouldn't let me. Did you hmm. go to confession? Oh, no, the demon wouldn't let me. And so we're praying over somebody who's, who, who, by, like you say, Adrian, that's good theology. That soul is not meritorious. We can pray for that soul. The priest can pray for that soul. We have to hold oh. you right there, Dr. Dan. We're going to go yeah. to a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up where we left off. Plus, I want to ask about authority. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Do you know what are the two most common questions after attending a non-Catholic church service? Answer, how is the preaching and how is the worship? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, evaluation of worship? That's odd. Who's evaluating worship? Well, here's what really is meant by that. How is the music, the singing, and the audible response of the people? And if that were important, wouldn't that be our Lord's decision anyway? Secondly, Catholic teaching. Worship is fundamentally not tied to music and song, though it can be so supported by music and song. The 2,000-year history of Catholic worship is primarily about the representing of Jesus' unbloody, timeless sacrifice on every Catholic altar. It is that moment when the bread and wine are changed into Jesus' own body and blood. We then participate in that worship by bringing our own sacrifice of self, whether sorrow or praise. And thirdly, my take. The only evaluation that should be considered after a church or a mass is the evaluation of heart and actions. That is, did we grow in obedience to the royal law of love? Help us, Father. Hey, Donnie, in what gospel do we find the Hail Mary prayer? The gospel of Luke. Do we worship Mary? No. What do we do? Ask her to pray for us. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. A beautiful day. And remember, as you see the sun rising in the morning, let that bring to mind the rising of the Son of God on Easter Sunday. A very beautiful, beautiful message. Something that we can always think about and always rejoice in, no matter how terrible things are in the world, no matter how the stresses and anxieties you can always remember that our Lord rose from the dead, not for everybody, but specifically for you, because he loved you. Joining us right now is Dr. Dan. He is the author of Liber Cristo, a manual of how to deal with spiritual warfare. A very excellent work here. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Dan. Thank you, Agent. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's very interesting to me. We talk a lot about the issue of authority. Uh, this has become a more as well accustomed topic in the, in the Catholic sphere. And I think it's very important because people fail to understand uh, where, where and why authority matters. And we were just talking about a couple minutes ago and how there is this 
milieu and the culture of communism, of egalitarianism, and say, oh, everybody's equal, everybody's the same, no one is better than anybody else, priesthood of all believers, and all these other things. And so now we have a lot of things that are have a good intentions, like deliverance ministries, where people will try to have lay persons try to do deliverance and things like that. Uh, tell me about authority and why it matters. Yeah, you, you, you make up, a, you, you make up a, a, a very insightful point, and that is there's a collapse, a general collapse today between the universal priesthood of the laity and the, and the, the sacerdotal priesthood of the ordained, So, which the Second Vatican Council clearly says they differ both in essence and degree. When you collapse those two, um, it, 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 a great havoc can happen in the church. And so the imposing of order, part of, part of what our protocol and the experience of Father Ripperger and us that are working closely with him in cases is that the imposition of order is absolutely critical, that the demon responds to the rules of engagement. The demon responds to the imposition of order as much as to the prayers themselves. So imposing order is absolutely critical. Part of that is we establish a set order of times for prayer, Praying uh, ancient prayers, uh, uh, the, the, the like the Angelus, for example, uh, um, the 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 act of contrition, uh, etc. So imposing a, a set times of prayer, but also part of that order is reestablishing um, the authority structure in somebody's life. The authority structure is something again. The demon works only in the objective, and so by by imposing order of the of one's authority structure is very critical to liberation. I, I go into that in the book and expand upon what Father Ripperger writes in the introduction to his book, "The Deliverance Prayers for Use by the Laity," and also kind of condensing from what's in Dominion, the twofold ends of the authority structure to provide and protect. And so, and so those head of households, for example, head of religious orders, priest, etc., whatever your office is. Uh, within the mystical body and within natural law, as in the case of parents and fathers of head of households, that imposition of order and establishing right order is very, very important for, for liberation. Now, what are the risks if you violate that? And people may say, okay, well, maybe we should, but what would happen if I didn't? Well, the temptation, so the, the twofold, twofold ends of, order, of, of the authority structures to provide and protect, the temptation is always... Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. In your view, was the Virgin Mary simply an obedient woman who willingly gave biological and maternal matter to Jesus and therefore has been given undue adoration? So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, the Bible. The Virgin Mary is in the first book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, all through the Gospels and close to 15 other typologies throughout Scripture. Secondly, the Ark of the Covenant. It was the most revered object in the history of the children of Israel. That ark carried the presence of God. Well, goodness, the Virgin Mary did not just carry the presence of God. She carried God himself. Thirdly, something to think on. If God is a father, he is, and we are known as his children, we are, and the body of Christ are called brothers and sisters, they are. Wouldn't God provide a mother for his church? He did. So here's an idea. Ask a wartime veteran who soldiers cry out for in a moment of fear. That's right, their mother. Mother Mary, pray for us. I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. I love the shows with the Catholic apologists. I love the shows with the sort of day-to-day psychologist, Greg and Lisa Popchek. I love hearing not just of other people's problems who call in, but I love getting the Catholic take on how to deal with day-to-day reality. The 
Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. To, to, to either uh, abdicate your authority or to usurp the authority over, over somebody who is over you. And the barometer is, is retaliation. So, so when, we, when we can see what this book tries to do is teach people how to safely handle uh, the diabolic in your life and, and to do it in a very orderly way without becoming obsessed with the diabolic. Um, and so that, but the, the, the barometer, as we say, is retaliation. If you step outside of your authority structure and try to drive demons out outside of that, you could be retaliated against. This is our experience. And, and this, is, this is what we see from tradition as well. That's interesting. And okay, this kind of makes me think of uh, over maybe around uh, page 50 or so, you talk about uh, spiritual bonds between people, or I believe you say soul ties. Now, this is an interesting concept to me. I haven't really heard about this. And it sounds like this kind of um, that it relates to the authority structure in some way where you're kind of giving authority over to an individual, but it's in a but it's perverse. Um, Can you explain this situation to me? Right. Authority, authority is something that flows through office. And this is a key distinction that we need to make that it's it's through it's through it's through office that authority comes in. And and, and that that what dictated it. It isn't charism. It isn't gift. You might have a certain gift. You might have certain gifts that, that, that you know, gifts freely given. <clears throat> but your authority structure in the objective realm, remember, the demon only works in the objective. He doesn't care about the subjective in the objective reality. The authority flows through office. And when you abdicate that authority or you or you you create soul ties with other people through certain unholy acts, um, that needs to be that needs to be repaired uh, beginning through the sacrament of confession. That's very interesting. And uh, here is a, um, a, I suppose in certain certain circles, a very controversial topic. Uh, lesson three, you have a the, the uh, section here on the occult and generational sin. And I know there are many people who would deny that generational sin exists. Uh, generational spirits exist. Uh, so why do you think, uh, what is your position on this? And uh, how would you defend it against people who would say, no, no, there cannot be generational sin. It's clear, scripture says, that uh, the child doesn't suffer the sins of their father. So what say you, Dr. Dan? Yeah, I would just follow, I would just point to to uh, St. Augustine, doctor of grace, doctor of the church, um, in, in, his, in his debate with Julian of Eclanum uh, and the Pelagians. He very clearly shows a distinction between the sin and the and the effect of the sin, and so uh, the 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 sin itself that God punishes. He says very clearly, God Himself says multiple times in the Pentateuch, "I will punish the sins of the father and their children." So the effect of the sin uh, carries on to the children. This is a critical. Th- this is something you're right. This is something that 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 is that is not fleshed out clearly. Uh, in theological circles, so so understand the difference between the distinction between the 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 the, the sin itself in baptism, or God's five, for example, that I will punish the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. So the effect of that, and 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 Augustine uses this to defend the dogma of the of of the uh, um, of the original sin. So we have the effect of original sin is death and concupiscence. And what he and what we, we can see original sin is a privation of grace. So it isn't so much it can be seen also not so much as uh, uh, of uh, this punishment, but as a privation of grace. And so original sin is a lack of grace. It's a lack of something, the fullness, the protection of grace. And so too with generational generational curses, what Augustine would call inherited guilt. Uh, this guilt is inherited is really a privation of the grace 
of the protection of blessing. And this is how St. Augustine argues it. You know, it's very interesting to me. Uh, two thoughts whenever you, as you're speaking there, I've talked about this with other people in private before, and I always give the analogy of, I think generational spirits must exist. And you just think about the fact that on a natural level, if a father squanders all his family's wealth gambling, well, then it affects his kids and his children's children uh, unto the third and fourth generations. And so how much so more in the spiritual life, um, grace builds on nature and vice in the spiritual world builds on vice in the natural world. And so it just seems to make sense to me. And a personal anecdote, a friend of mine who had Freemasons in his family uh, did the prayers in Father Ripperger's uh, book for use with the laity. And afterwards, he had, uh, there was, had profound effect in his family. And um, as he finished the prayers, he had, uh, he said that they felt like something just like removed from the house and knocked over uh, some of their religious items that were on their shelves. And he was like, no, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. They were, they weren't teetering on anything. They could not have been fallen off naturally. It must have been knocked off. And so I just kind of see those good things kind of happen. Have you witnessed these uh, things that, in, uh, in your personal life? That is 100% consistent with our experience. Um, another, another scripture in the New Testament, uh, when Jesus goes to the, the boy with the demon, um, and he goes to the father, remember Mark chapter 9, uh, how long he asked him, how long is this, has this been happening? And the father says in Greek, uh, ex paideothen, Jerome translates this ab infancia, from his infancy, since he was, as we would say in Ohio, since he was a little feller, since he was a tiny little guy, he's, this has been happening to him. And so, and so, um, so how could that be? How could there be, uh, the, 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 you know, how could this be otherwise? We also see this with uh, the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was, it wasn't her daughter, it was her little daughter. Who scripture would argue, I would argue from scripture is a prebiscent child. How can this be with children being afflicted? It's the effect of the sin upon the children and not the sin itself. Uh, the spiritual guilt of that sin belongs to the, to the one who commits it, but the effect. In fact, in, in, in Ezekiel 18, um, where it says the children, eat, the parents eat the grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. St. Augustine said, this is a prophecy. This is a prophecy pointing to the effects of baptism, removing the guilt of baptism. And so, and so what your, your friend described, I could give you uh, uh, 20 stories that are exactly consistent with that, with exactly what he experienced. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. I mean, it's like one, it's one thing to, you know, theorize about these things and to write about these things. But then I, when you see it being experienced by people, you know, um, and it's, and it's, right. you, you have a theory, you test a theory and it turns out to seem to be true. It's very hard to argue with. Now, I want to switch over to evil influence. Now, this happens with uh, friends, family, uh, but also what we listen to, what we hear, uh, groups that we associate with, um, may what we surround ourselves with in terms of art and other things like that. Uh, so let's uh, talk about that for just a moment. Uh, what are these influences? How are they bad and how can we kind of reject those? Yeah, we, in the book, I speak about that interactive diabolic activity that, again, the demon has no rights if you, uh, over a soul. Pers- if the soul is baptized by right, that soul belongs to Jesus Christ. That, that, that's it. Now, he'll take permissions, and there's an interactive nature to diabolic activity. There's a, there, there is a, it's a two-way street. So when permissions are granted, permissions are taken. And so, so part of this, 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 this regimen is it's, it's working through uncovering those areas in my life. Man, I did this. 
I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I, I've, you know, had cases, you know, um, you know, I practiced contraception my whole, my whole marital life and I finally stopped. I realized it was wrong, but I never confessed it. I did this particular act of, you know, I, I went to and, and participated in this ritual. I went to the curandera. Uh, uh, um, you know, I did these things, but I, but I've never done anything with it, with it. And so hovering over the person again, a curse like original sin, a curse is like a privation of grace. There's there's a vibration of blessing of the protection of blessing, and so this this is why uh, uh, when we when we when we lower the shield as fathers, for example, we lower the shield and we participate in evil, looking at pornography, etc. We're we're no longer providing protection for our families, and so what and so what we do is is in the book is try to air, identify those areas. Remember, specificity is critical. I can tell you this as a, as an attack helicopter pilot who flew in combat. Being precise, you can shoot all the missiles and rockets you want, but you've, but you've got to be precise in your target. So this is an area of spiritual warfare that precision is absolutely critical. And I Amen. try to walk the reader through that. Amen. We're just about out of time. Uh, where can people find the book? Where can people find more information? Yeah, more information, LibraCristo.org. And you can buy the book at uh, Tan Books. Just type in uh, Tan Books, Liber, the Libra Cristo Method, and you, it'll send you a link there and, and I think a discount code as well. Very good. And we'll definitely have to have you back because we barely scratched the surface of yeah. this uh, this giant tome. And I, I'm very intrigued by this. I think it's very good. So God bless you, Dr. Dan. And we'll definitely have to have you back on. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. God bless you guys today. God bless you. Uh, joining us right now is Carrie Gress. She is the author of The End of Woman, uh, amongst many, many other books and articles and so much more. Uh, but the relevant to today, The End of Woman, published by Regnery Press. Good morning to you, Dr. Gress. Good morning. It's good to have you on. And it's uh, very interesting because I would give away your book, The Anti-Mary Exposed, to people. Um, and I would always tell people, I was like, it's a really good book. Uh, she kind of goes after third wave feminism, but she really doesn't really touch first wave feminism at all. Um, just like keep that in mind when you read it. And it seems in this book that you uh, actually come after feminism <laughs> all the way to its roots. And I was like, whoa, like this is, uh, this is great. Uh, praise be to God. So uh, tell me about the formulation of this book from the anti-Mary Exposed to, to, the, to this. Yeah, well, you know, the anti-Mary Exposed, I mean, it was, did an, it was an incredible book. I think it, you know, I'm still getting messages from people saying it's changed their lives and their lifestyles and, and just in incredible ways and certainly their marriages as well. So, but I had a lot of people saying, why... Can you make one that's Protestant friendly and one that is, you know, secular friendly that I can give to people that aren't of have any faith? And so that was kind of in the back of my mind. And I thought, well, I haven't dug into first wave feminism yet. Let me just go back and see what's there. And, I, you know, I thought I would just find some really lovely things about women. Like, I just had no idea what what was there. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Your church most likely has a praise and worship time. Would you be surprised to know that the songs you sing might have nothing to do with worship? So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, history. Praise and worship was not a term used until the mid-60s when the Jesus people music started becoming more complex and contemporary. By the late 70s, praise and worship had become an entire entity of its own. Secondly, what is worship? It's a sacrifice. It's not singing a soft, flowy song with hands raised. 
The New Testament writers understood that worship was a sacrifice, that it occurred on an altar, which was and is known as a place of slaughter. Thirdly, the altar is for you. Jesus, in the holy sacrifices of the Mass, invites you to participate in His timeless sacrifice of love that truly occurs on the altar. No nightclub effects, no entertainment, no pumped-up emotion. Oh, and please don't register for the next Praise and Worship Global Seminar. Why? Because you can't teach praise and it won't include worship. Yikes! Hey, Donnie, name four of the seven sacraments. Baptism, confession. That's right, reconciliation. Communion and confirmation. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. I started digging into it and it you know it turns out it's like the crazy old aunt grandma in the attic like there's some awful 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 things um, that were going on during the first wave that I think so few of us know and um, so anyway that's really where the, the book just sort of took over because I started seeing not only the problems in the first wave feminism but how those problems led to the second wave and then of course led to where we're at now with the, the transgender movement so the the big question the early feminists were asking was how do we how do we help women but not how do we help women as women but instead how do we help women become men um, so with that question in mind you can really see what's happened over 200 years and how we've gotten to this point where women are willingly subjecting themselves to presumably transgender um, Surgeries, which of course, you know, cannot, cannot be successful because of the, the fact that there's so much locked into the body that's, mm. that is female. So that, that's really where it started. Dr. Grass, uh, what was maybe your, your most surprising finding as you were researching for this book? Oh, wow. You know, there were several of them. Um, I think one, the first one was really to see the role that, um, the poet Percy Shelley played in this. You know, his wife was Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein and, She's developing this character that we we now all know of, um, or at least the book, and we've heard of it. Um, but he developed this character named Sithna, who was a, um, a, a, you know, obviously a fictional character, but she was the first independent woman. So she had no husband, no children. Um, her one relationship was actually with Satan. Oh, um, so he, that that was really shocking to see his influence in the 1800s and how much he influenced women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Um, so that was certainly one. And then in the 1900s, it was definitely to see the connection with Betty Friedan and communism, which, um, I think, you know, most, she, she always claimed to be just a housewife and her book, Feminine Mystique, sold three million copies within the first few years of its publication and has had enormous rippling effects around the world, um, especially with the acceptance of, of abortion. And so those, I think, were the two things that were just, probably the most shocking um, elements when I dug into this. You know, that reminds me of um, a quote that people will often say. In fact, a friend of mine from high school, she just became a high school teacher at an all-girls school, and she put this mm -hmm. up on her whiteboard and with pictures of women surrounding it. It says, uh, well-behaved women seldom make history. And I'm thinking yeah. to myself... Actually, every woman I know that's famous is a well-behaved woman. I'm thinking of all the female saints. Um, so I think that's very interesting. Where yeah. does that phrase come from? And can you break that down for me? Yeah, no, I mean, and that's actually the fascinating part that I dug into. The, my, my book is broken up into three parts. The first part is called The Lost Girls. 
And these are all the women that formed what we now know to be the feminist movement in, in the country. These are women that should never have been given any kind of control over public policy, over public thought, the public square in any way. All of them had deep, deep wounds and um, had a lot of anger and rage. And, you know, it's just amazing to see how influential they've been. So really for the last 200 years, we can say that this this type of woman who's very angry and outspoken has really become the norm. And that's where it's it's come from. Um, but what it led to, of course, was the mean girls. And that's the second chapter of my book, which is really where the feminists realized how much power they could get from this. Because as you know, you know, talking about feminism is sort of like kryptonite for men. Like men do not ever want to talk about this subject. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame you. It's so taboo. You're never going to win. You know, it's just better to just back away from the conversation. And um, so I think that that's where their power also has really expanded. And so um, if we can, they can continue to perpetuate this idea that angry and mean women um, are good then that's really what what they're about. Um, and then, of course, the third part of the book is is called uh, No Girls, because that's the direction that we're going to now is just erasing entirely what it means to be a woman, erasing motherhood, erasing, um, you know, traces of it in the in the human body even. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you, you say that that's kind of a kryptonite for, for me to talk about it. And that's really true. I mean, last time I talked about it publicly, I had people telling me, uh, calling me a, a misogynist. They were saying that I, uh, I, I'm a wife beater, uh, which is funny because I'm not married. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well, there you go, folks. Um, all these things come out of the woodwork whenever you start attacking this principle. But I think the reason is that it goes against decisions that people have made that are foundational to their entire lives. I'm thinking of uh, careerism in a lot of these ladies. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And that, you know, that's really the most tragic thing is that women have been told that they will be happy if they have a career and that their their husbands and their children are obstacles to that happiness. And that comes straight out of Marx, out of Betty Friedan's, you know, devotion to Marx. She was a firm believer that women could only be free if they were out of the home, um, because then they would be like men in the, the communist Soviet model, really. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just amazing to see the narcissism that it creates, the kind of self-centeredness that it creates and that just the breakup of, of the, the marriage and the family. And of course, that was the goal from the very beginning, um, was to, to end that. Um, and the free love element has also, is another element. In fact, free love, the occult, and um, smashing the patriarchy were really the three pieces, the three threads that I found extending throughout the whole movement. And, um, you know, it's just been a deadly, deadly ideology, especially if like, you look at the abortion numbers in the world today, not just the United States, but in the world. There's more abortions in the world than there are natural deaths or deaths from wow. any other cause. Wow. Um, yeah, it's really overwhelming when you start seeing the numbers and what what that has done. I mean, these are this is a relationship that's the most tender relationship in all of the human world, and um, the feminists have found a way to to to, to break that, to destroy us, wow. to talk us into believing that our children are. Our enemies. Amen. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, I want to pick up on that note about the feminism and the occult. Now, that's news to me. I didn't know about that. That's interesting. We'll pick up on that when we come back. And welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. You know, we're talking about feminism. I know. I know. Scary topic. 
Uh, we're talking about The End of Woman, a book authored by Dr. Carrie Gress, uh, published by Regnery. The many, many books worthy of purchasing from Dr. Gress. In fact, uh, The Anti-Mary Exposed was a huge like bombshell. And when I was in college, everybody in the university, all the women had gotten it and all the men were reading it. And everybody was like, whoa, like, this is crazy. Uh, so it was a pretty big bombshell when it came out. And I expect this is going to be very similar effect um, as it gains popularity. So check that out, Regnery Press. Uh, but Dr. Gress, thank you for joining us. I want to pick up on what we were talking about before we went to a break. I want to pick up on the occult aspect in a second, but I also was thinking about the careerism. And there was a phrase, and I don't know the source from it. I heard it from, I believe it was Michael Knowles where I heard it from first. He said that one of the first wave feminists made the comment we have to force women into the workforce because if given the opportunity, they will choose to stay home. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a very, very interesting observation. Um, yeah. What is your thought about that? Yeah. Yeah, that came from Simone de Beauvoir, um, who was right on the, the edge of first and second wave feminism. And she said that to Betty Friedan. I mean, that's that, that in a conversation, that's actually where the quote came from. And so you can see Betty Friedan's work being so effective because she was a psychology um, student of psychology, and she really did an amazing job of convincing women that they should leave the home. First of all, she called it a comfortable concentration camp. Now, she's speaking to like the most educated, most wealthy civilization, uh, you know, group of women in all of history, and she's telling them they live in a comfortable concentration camp, um, which, you know, I have no idea how she got away with that. Um, but the other, um, reality was she used a lot of tactics that we see now, certainly in the woke movement, this idea of um, letting women know that this they've been victimized, um, that they're missing out, you know, all of those things that women are really glom onto, you know, because it sounds like these are important things. You know, it's that same thing that Satan did with Eve. Um, that, that same question, you know, what are you missing out on? Um, when he tempted her with the, the fruit. So that, that was really an effective method of, of getting women out of, of the home. And, um, you know, once it started and growing in popularity, then they used a lot of other media tactics, um, a lot of savvy, um, women. They use television, they use magazines, you know, all of those things. And it's just perpetuated. Barbie's just the, the latest iteration of that, um, where we're indo- indoctrinating really a new generation into believing that the patriarchy is bad. It always needs to be smashed. Um, women are good. And the more women are in control, the, be- the more peaceful civilization will be, which of course is not at all true. Either. You know, it's so. interesting because I was told recently that um, if women ran the world, there would be no wars. And I thought that was a very strange thing to right. say, um, because as if, as if, the reason why wars happen is because of men as if women are not in positions of power throughout the world today. Uh, What are your thoughts on on where that comes from and the truth to that? Yeah. So a lot of the movement got started and really animated around the time of the Vietnam war. And that was one of their talking points. You know, all of these things are great bumper stickers. They're, they're really easy to say. They sound really good. You know, you see them on signs at women's movements, women's marches. Um, But yeah, that's definitely another one that, um, Kate Millett in particular picked up on that and she talked about how, um, men were, had this, the strength to be able to go into a war zone and kill innocent people. And so she believed it was a, a woman's duty to have that kind of strength and, and be able to kill her own child in abortion. Wow. And she didn't mince words here. I mean, this was a very clear 
specification. So that, that, but she also believed that, that men were the ones that were responsible for all of the wars. And so to be able to end them, it, women had to be in charge, which of course, you know, we've seen <laughs> in our own domestic lives and, and just in the, in the United States that that doesn't bear fruit. That's not exactly the case at all. Um, but again, it's these kinds of, of, um, you know, sound bites that just keep drilling through the culture. Mm-hmm. And people believe them because we don't have, you know, enough on the other side saying, you know, that's ridiculous um, and really pointing that out. OK, so I want to uh, this. I mean, each one of these topics could be addressed in an hour long format <laughs> yeah, each, uh, for alone. Sure. Uh, so I recommend people go get pretty much all of your books. But the end of woman is the one we're talking about today. Um, the so let's go over to the occult. I was yeah. not aware that there was an occult element um, tied into all this. I, so let me know about this. Yeah, so the occult element is actually huge, especially in the 1800s and the early feminist movement. Again, Percy Shelley has, um, went back to Genesis and really rewrote the book. I mean, he wanted to, fr- to, to say that Eve was framed and that she was actually, um, really liberated by the serpent. The serpent was good and, cre- and gave her a new kind of knowledge. Um, so the fall wasn't really her fault. And this was picked up on by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, who was also very anti-Christian in her later life. She she was raised a Calvinist, um, but she ended up getting involved in theosophy as well as other atheist organizations. She actually wrote this book called The Women's Bible that you can still purchase. And um, it's a, a kind of a combination of different women that contributed to it. But some of them were avowed theosophists, um, which was definitely a new age you know, amalgamation of religions. Um, and actually, um, they, and that comes very, comes through very clearly. In fact, if you read it, it's, it's almost laughable. It's sort of like a teenager, an angry teenager writing um, a commentary to the Bible. Like it's, it's really silly. Um, but theosophy didn't go away either. In fact, later, Gloria Steinem talked about her mother was a theosophist. Um, so there, there's this thread of the occult in all these different ways. Kate, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was also very involved in seances. She had friends that were mediums, and um, that created obviously a lot of division in the, the women's suffragette movement. Um, but it was at this time of the, the Great Awakening, uh, Second Great Awakening in the United States. So many of us carry such heavy burdens. She's having a relationship with George. It's disgusting. It's dis- deep within. We struggle because sin separates us from God. But thanks to the grace of confession, God compassionately listens, forgives, and sets us free. So if it's been a while since you've been to confession or mass, come home and experience a fresh start. Visit catholicscomehome.org. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Who did God use to get John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Here's your choices. Could it have been Simeon or St. Joseph or maybe an unknown prophet? Maybe Jesus. Who was it? Your answer in a moment. Secondly, so what methods do we see in the New Testament for Christians receiving the Holy Spirit? Well, it was usually through the laying on of hands. Peter and John laid hands on those in Samaria. St. Paul laid hands on those believers in Ephesus. Prior to that, 
that, we see Jesus merely breathing on the apostles. So here's your answer. A greeting. Yes, a greeting. You see, after Gabriel's powerful annunciation to the Virgin Mary, a simple, profound greeting from Mary to Elizabeth caused John the Baptist to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result, he leaped in her womb. Now, to all my daring Pentecostal church friends, no matter how much you pray in tongues over someone, this method won't work. Why? Because it's not a method. It was the divine team of the Blessed Trinity, Gabriel, Mary, and Elizabeth, and that, my friend, will not happen again. I actually was gone from the Catholic Church for 35 years. I want to get to heaven. I don't know if I will. I mean, I worry about it. But I not only want to get to heaven at the moment of my death, I want to find as much heaven as possible here on earth. So I need help. I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. All Catholic, all the time. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. And mediums and seances were very common because people had lost so many loved ones in the Civil War. So many children had died, and, and these mediums offered the opportunity to contact the dead, and that was really appealing to people at that time. So all of these things, you know, we have this very, I think, pristine vision of what the 1800s looked like, and um, I think this book kind of blows that up. You know, like, this is not really what, that's not really what was going on. There was really a lot more very dark um, elements that, that were happening, happening that were motivating the movement. Mm, wow, that's... That's incredible. And the other thing that's incredible, what you were saying, was you said he at the, the beginning there. So the first feminists were men, which I guess makes sense, because how did these things uh, get kickstarted if men ran the world um, and women are saying that the women, that men are oppressing them? But then how did they get the rights to begin with if the men didn't give it to them? So uh, what is the role of men in this whole situation? Yeah. So that's a great question. So um, the the first, the godmother of feminism, as she's called, is Mary Wollstonecraft. And her son, per, son-in-law that she never met because she died in childbirth with her first daughter, or no, or second, sorry, second daughter. Welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. You know, there are a lot of things that are happening in the world today, and not least of which, in fact, probably one of the most concerning things going on is the situation between Israel and Palestine. And joining us right now is Cardinal Pisabala. He's a Latin patriarch of Jerusalem. And we're going to be talking about the situation here, especially in regards to the Christians who are caught up in the middle of all of this. Good morning to you, uh, Cardinal Pisabala. Good morning to you. It's afternoon for me, almost evening, but it's okay. okay. Have a nice day. Amen. Amen. And your eminence is a it's a situation that many people are very confused because, you know, we start seeing media all over the place and no one really knows what's going on. So uh, let's start from here. From your perspective, from being in Jerusalem, uh, what exactly is happening? First of all, uh, it's a week, uh, almost it's already a week today that we are living in a totally new, completely new uh, dramatic situation. Last Saturday, uh, uh, people of Hamas entered into Israel and committed uh, horrific and barbaric 
massacre of uh, Israeli people. And as retaliation, uh, now we have a very strong, very tough siege of uh, the, the Strip of Gaza, where also thousand Christians are living, and with uh, bombs and uh, with uh, attacks and uh, with order of evacuation that we received a few, few, few hours uh, ago of uh, evacuation, totally evacuation, the northern side, northern part of uh, Gaza, where one more than one million people are living. And so you can imagine the situation, a chaotic situation, dramatic situation, a lot of anger, tension, hatred, and uh, we are powerless. Mm. You know, the many people I've been speaking to in, in the U.S., there's been uh, various kinds of sentiments. Some people are on the saying, you know, we need to support Israel. They need to just wipe out Palestine, level it to the ground. Other people are saying, oh, people in, in Gaza, the people in Palestine are being oppressed and they're just rising up and defending themselves. And I've also heard from uh, many Catholics who are saying, raise up their hands, say, let them all kill each other. Who cares? And it kind of breaks my heart that this there's this kind of attitude of just of total warfare here. Uh, what kind of perspective should we have, especially considering that there are our brothers and sisters in Christ that are present there in between all of this? Uh, so what kind of disposition do you think someone should have in regards to this? I was wondering how it's possible that a believer, especially a Christian, can think and say such things, this, this kind of things. Uh, we are all created at the image of God, and we have to respect the dignity of, a, of every human being. And we cannot uh, respond to a crime with another crime. And uh, we are called to, and here, Israelis and Palestinians, 5 million Palestinians, 9 million Israelis approximately, they are, they are not going to disappear. It's not, it's not realistic to say what uh, these people are saying. They are... They are forced, they like, your, it, they like it or not, to live one close to another. And cannot be a coexistence of war. It's, that doesn't make sense. And also from the religious point of view, I mean, uh, as Christians, I mean, we, we want to work for justice. And there is no justice without forgiveness and reconciliation. So we have to work for this and not for, uh, for the opposite. Uh, I know it's very difficult. This world's night seems to be uh, word in the wind, uh, but this is what we have to work for. Amen, amen. We definitely would like, would love to have peace. I think that is very important that we be praying for. Now, what about the situation in regards to the the people on the ground? Is are Christians able to eat to drink? I, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, tourism is is I'm sure dead. Um, what is the what is the financial and living situation for the Christians? Yes, the dramatic situation now is in Gaza, mm. in West Bank and Israel. The situation is serious, uh, but till now people can live, can eat. I mean, of course, there will be very difficult situations in the short in the, in the short term, but uh, it's not the first time you can survive. But the the serious situation now is in Gaza because Gaza. Uh, now it's not possible to introduce any more water, food, and uh, as I said, there is an evacuation of about 1.1 million people uh, in 24 hours. Uh, and our Christians, we have about 1,000 Christians there, 
they don't know where to go. We don't have a place where to go. And the Strip of Gaza is hermetically closed. So we are, we are a little bit, uh, we are not a little bit, we are totally powerless. Mm. Yeah, that, uh, what's the path to recovery for these people? I mean, and also how can people, how are they receiving any kind of help? I've heard that they are shutting off all aid into Palestine, and I don't think that's being restricted to just Hamas. It's It's got to be to everyone in Palestine. Is Are they able to get water? Uh, not just Palestine, it's a strip of Gaza. A strip of and, Gaza. Uh, uh, yes, this affects all, of course. Now, uh, we, um, almost all the Christians are now gathered in the church compounds, Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, 400 and 400. Uh, and we try to give them as much as we have. But uh, we also, our supply is going to finish. We have to find the ways, but it's very difficult because the, the street is totally closed, hermetically closed. We don't know uh, how to, we are looking now through some, uh, maybe the Red Cross or other organization to see if we can introduce and to help them, at least to give them water and food. Wow, what a, that is a very concerning situation there, Your Eminence. Uh, certainly we will be praying for uh, a solution for for you to be able to help our our brothers and sisters there on the Gaza Strip. Um, I'm wondering, Your Eminence, if uh, you could share a little bit of some some insights since you're there on the ground. You have some historical connection there. Um, if there was any current event that you think may have caused this uh, attack of this magnitude, uh, I know certainly in in the news there's a, a lot of talk on. Uh, you know, how could this have happened, uh, a lack of intelligence and that sort of thing. But it, do you know if there's any sort of event that, that caused an attack like this? There are remote calls and uh, and uh, um, close and very um, close uh, causes. I mean, the remote cause is that the political situation has never been solved. The, also, the, few, the Palestinian issue has never been uh, seriously uh, taken and tackled. I mean, the Palestinians, there are five million Palestinians still waiting uh, to know about their future as nation, as people. Um, so this created a lot of anger, tensions, and also gave, gave uh, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, strength to the fundamentalist, uh, fund fund fundamental uh, movements like uh, Hamas and others. And of course, about how this could 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 happen now? Why the Secret Service didn't see all this? This is a question for all of us. We are all asking how it's possible that this could have happened. Mm. Your beatitude. The other thing that I noticed here is that when this is happening, that nobody is. What's the mm, what's the population in terms of the Christians? in this area between Gaza and Israel? Uh, we have about 130,000 Arab Christians in Israel, about 50,000 Arab Christians in Palestine, and 1,000 Christians in Gaza. Then we have about 100,000 foreign workers, mainly Filipinos and Indians, working in Israel who are Catholic, Roman Catholic. Wow, I didn't realize that. Um, and so in terms of where they're living, are where are they in regards to to the warfare? Are they caught up in this, or is it mostly uh, Jews and Muslims? 
um, the, the one are, are in uh, Gaza. The people in Gaza, they are <laughs> blocked inside, about 1,000 Christians. All the others are living in their own houses, homes. And of course, the situation is very tense. They remain, they remain at home, but they are not living dramatic situation as dramatic as in Gaza. Mm. And then what about peace? How does, I, I mean, I can't fathom what would be required to have peace. So, I mean, what what kind of negotiation could happen to, to help yes. bring about with it? Respect, yes, with all respect to talk about peace now doesn't make sense. Mm. Uh, peace is an attitude uh, uh, that is based on trust, faith, and, and, um, uh, and the relations. Now there's nothing. First, we have to stop this war. Then, uh, I don't know how, because after this war, the relations will be also the relations will be destroyed, will be a ruin in the relations and the trust between Israelis and Palestinians. But we have first to find ways to start rebuilding trust between the two peoples in order to arrive one day, who knows when, uh, we can have, um, I don't know if peace at least, but at least more stability and serene relations. Mm. So what kind of, what can we expect in terms of um, what's being played out I, I can't imagine this. Uh, how long do you think this is going to last? I don't know. Uh, we, uh, I don't. I don't know how to answer now. What is? I know that this war will be very long. I know that the operation, the war in Gaza, is just at the beginning. Uh, we don't know what what to expect, and also our people are waiting for us a word from us, a word of orientation and consolation. And uh, it's not easy. And also we have Catholic Christians, as, as you said, in Israel and Palestine. Not necessarily they share the same opinion about. And to keep united all this situation is not simple. And also for me personally, I mean, <laughs> it's a very complicated situation, a very dividing uh, situation in my heart first and my prayer in all, in all what we have to do. Mm. And you have called for uh, people to to begin to to pray for this intention and yes. to pray for peace. Um, I, called, I called all our people. I saw that many other churches all over the world they join uh, our, my appeal next Tuesday to have a full day of fasting and prayer for for peace and reconciliation and justice. And these, in this moment, we are powerless. We cannot, we don't have weapon. We cannot stop uh, maybe immediately this war, but we, we need to, to look to God and to talk with him and to also to scream to him if necessary and to be united, to, to have him close to us as consolation. And so what has kind of been the reaction on the ground in terms of, I know there's a lot of different religious communities there. Has there been a kind of movement to try to, to help and and in what ways of course everyone wants to uh, we receive a lot of uh, calls and people want to help and support but right now there is nothing to do mm. just to pray because in the where there is war we cannot go everything is closed hermetically closed and uh, there is no way to introduce anything to do anything uh, but we have to prepare ourselves of course with the organizations Red Cross, CRS, Caritas, and all the different organizations, church organizations, not only church organizations, uh, to be prepared for what to do after this war. Mm. 
Mm. And so what would you tell to people who are holding a very strong stance one way or the other? Um, I know there's a lot of people who are, are saying we have to hold exposition. Um, what say you in regards to that? To be responsible. It's very easy to, to judge, to say what to do or not to do when you are at your home. Uh, uh, but when you are under the bombs, when you assist to these massacres, so in South, in South Israel, uh, the situation is quite different. And we should always Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Many committed Christians hold to this axiom. If it's in the Bible, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, here you go. 1 Timothy 2 states the following about women as related to church life. No braiding the hair, no gold jewelry, no pearls. Just learn in silence and do not teach. Does your pastor comply with these biblical instructions? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, an unpleasant fact. Many self-proclaimed Bible-only churches, sadly, will pick and choose what part of the Bible are implemented in the life of the church. Secondly, Catholic catechism. Be especially attentive to, quote, the content and unity of the whole scripture. And thirdly, a tough comeback. In order to understand the sacred author's intention, we must take into account culture, audience, and the literary genre. So if your Bible-only church does not strictly obey those instructions, then tell me the reason why. Well, we know, you know, 80% of your church is handled by women. So with those instructions in force, many women will leave your church, maybe even the pastor's wife. Ouch. I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. No, I didn't want to give up sin. I mean, the reason we sin is because sin is fun. But it's, it's self-love sin. But it's amazing with God's grace how easy trying to not sin it really is. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. very important something that's lost in war is immediately our our sense of the other person goes out the window and we kind of just see the opposite person as our enemy is not human we dehumanize and that immediately becomes the the attitude and i i fear that that's that's happened among many people already exactly i fully agree Alrighty, um and the other situation that people are very concerned about and i've been struggling to try to figure out myself is about the atrocities that are happening. Is this happening one way only? Is it happening both ways? Is it all fake? It's hard to discern what's fake news and what's not. Uh, we are living in the same situation. I mean, uh, uh, of course, what happened in South uh, Israel is all is not fake. It's true, unfortunately. Uh, but also we saw videos of uh, re- the retaliation, uh, even uh, even very very ugly, very dramatic. Uh, uh, is is uh, is quite I don't know. It's quite frustrating and uh, give a lot of pain to see how it is easy to to uh, destroy the human dignity and the human image we have uh, in our attitude when anger and hatred. Is guiding us. In your opinion, what do you think the foreign governments should do in terms of the this situation? I, many people in America, especially on the right, 
are calling for intervention to aid in Israel and to assist militarily in the war, I, of course, would support people helping provide food and shelter and whatever we need for both sides. But in terms of militarily, what do you think foreign governments should do, in your opinion? The option will not solve anything. You can destroy these people. Others will come. I mean, uh, uh, what is nurturing all these uh, situations is the hatred. So we have to remove the cause of hatred. Uh, anyway, I hope that the foreign ministries, the chancelleries, will uh, work to de-escalate the situation, not to create, uh, not to create more tension, more, and to increase the the, the tension, the war in uh, this part of the world. Absolutely, and I think that's very good. To, to we want to promote uh, charity over over hatred, but how does one do that? I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to see how we can bring about this kind of spirit. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, how you, you mentioned, yeah, I mean, the situation is, is as such that I don't know there, there can be no real peace uh, outside of some kind of divine intervention. Uh, today is the anniversary of the miracle of the sun. And I'm thinking uh, we need divine intervention. We need to call God, of course, uh, but we, uh, God, uh, needs our hands, our hearts, our, our minds to solve the problems. He will not come to do the work for us. Uh, but in the prayer, he can enlighten our work and, and give us indication how to do. Of course, the, now what is in front of us is uh, catastrophic, and to talk about peace and reconciliation doesn't make sense, but we have to start doing something. Uh, first of all, right now, we have to work in order to support, uh, um, the, from the humanitarian point of view, to support the population, those are suffering. This is the first thing to do, to be there, to be present, to, to be close and to help. And then when the time will come to start to, in our schools, in, in our context of life, to see what is possible to, you know, to, to change our narratives. And, uh, but it, it will take a long time. It will be very difficult, a big challenge. Now, they think your beatitude that many Americans, you mentioned hatred, and then, of course, between the Israelis and the Palestinians, um, it's very much present. But among people in the Western countries, especially in the U.S., there is a lot of hatred here as well. Uh, what would you tell somebody? How would you encourage someone to try to get that hatred out of their heart so that way they can have, think with a clear mind and see with a clear with a clear mind it's, uh, it's not easy to answer these questions it's true that uh, the israeli-palestinian issue always create a lot of division not just here but over the world especially in the western countries there are pro-palestinians pro-israelis and so on this partial approach to the complexity of this reality uh, so I think it's important to give the right information, uh, to talk, to listen, and um, because some, many, many attitudes, many uh, stands are based on partial information. And uh, it's important uh, not to take part, but not to judge immediately, but to try to understand, I, still, I think is the first thing to do. But it's not easy, I know it's not easy because it's an issue uh, that becomes sometimes very, uh, very emotional, and with emotion is very difficult to deal with. 
Now, these, you mentioned also that the, the history there is very complex, and many people, especially I mean, we have a very notorious uh, problem in America of not knowing the anybody else's history except our own, and even that, we don't barely, barely know that. So many people have are completely ignorant of the situation of Israel. Uh, could you give us a brief understanding of the background here? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's a, quite a quite a big question. To be short, is that in '48, after the Second World War, uh, uh, was created the State of Israel after the uh, after the declaration of uh, UN. Uh, UN declaration was to create the State of Israel and along State of Israel also the State of Palestine. But immediately after um, the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, a war was uh, started between uh, the new, uh, newly born state of Israel and the Arab countries, uh, and si- um, since then um, the, Pal- um, the Palestinian state was not created. It's always been postponed the creation and the condition and the, um, the borders and uh, the, the the presence of the Palestinians where they are and so on is still waiting for uh, for a final solution, but we are still waiting for this. And what we are seeing today is the result of 70 years of um, um, uh, neglecting, I don't know how to say in English, neglecting uh, this, uh, this, uh, this decision of 48. Mm. And what about this? The... Very, very approximative. Huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the, the Catholics' presence and the area, I mean, we've, that's, yeah, I mean, the, the this area has been contention in contention for forever. Um, what about the Catholic presence there? What's the history there? The Catholic presence, uh, we Catholics, uh, the Christians, and the Catholics too. We are here since always. Uh, <laughs> the Christian, the Christian faith. Uh, Jesus was born here. Since then, Christians are here, and uh, we are always been very small presence. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, during the Crusaders at the Byzantine period, we are a strong presence, but usually we are always a very, um, a very small presence, symbolic presence. Uh, now we are about 1.5% of the whole population, so you can imagine. Uh, but the, the Christian presence and Catholic, together with the Christians, um, is part of the life of this country since always. Mm. So I guess the question then is, what about the situation in terms of politics versus religion? Many will say that this was a purely political act because of the political situation between Gaza and Israel. Uh, others will say, will start saying that this is purely religious and this is Muslim versus Jews. And some evangelical Christians in America are saying that this is a, a fulfillment of end time prophecies and saying that this is um, the apocalypse coming and they're trying to support the, uh, the, the book of the apocalypse being fulfilled. Uh, well, about the evangelicals, uh, I think uh, is, is, not, is, is not something that uh, we agree upon is, and is, I don't think is uh, real. But concerning the political and religious is not or or but and and mm. so you're saying that it's Maybe. it's both yeah. a political both and religious people. problem and, and so what is because the contention between the in the past 
But now you cannot neglect that there's also a religious element in this. And then what is the religious element in it? Uh, For for the Muslims is the liberation of Al-Aqsa. And for the Jews, not all of them, part of them, is the uh, I mean to to be in the places of the biblical tradition and biblical revelation. Mm. And then, so uh, what about the the Christian the claim to the area? And what about the uh, the Christian claim to the area as well? We don't have a political claim on this. We have a, a spiritual claim. We ah. have to be here. You have to be here as Christians. But the Christians don't have. We don't have a political claim. We don't want to have a. Christian country here. Mm. We, uh, the Palestinian Christians, uh, belong to the Palestinian uh, vision, and the Israeli Christians are with Israel. Okay. And before we uh, close out in our conversation here, your Eminence, is there something that is going on in Israel and in Palestine that Americans and the uh, West as a, as a whole are kind of missing in the situation? Uh, all what we said, I think, uh, I don't know how much they are aware of, but uh, they should be aware that, um, first of all, to be very prudent when they see the news and the, the TV, because uh, the TV uh, not always present the reality, the real situation on the ground. And also to, to take in consideration that behind decisions, there are always people, human beings, families, children, uh, parents, mothers, fathers, and it's not easy to decide their destiny in this way. Amen, amen. Uh, your your beatitude, uh, before we close out, could you remind us and reiterate your call to prayer and then uh, leave us with your, yes. your blessing? On October 17th, a day of fasting and prayer uh, for, for all our church and all those who want to join us for peace, reconciliation, and justice. Amen. Can you leave us with your blessing? May the Lord bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for your beatitude. God bless you. God love you. We'll be praying for the church in Israel and in Palestine and for peace and and for an end to violence. Uh, God bless you. God love you. on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Home of the Salt Community. Today we celebrate the Feast of St. Luke the Evangelist. 
This holy sacrifice of the Mass is offered for those joining us on Guadalupe Radio, online, and those here present. From all thy saints in warfare, for all thy saints at rest, to thee, O blessed Jesus, all praises be addressed. Thou, Lord, didst win the battle, that they might conquerors be. Their crown of living glory are lit with rays from thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of good will. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you. We give you thanks for your great glory. Lord God, heavenly King, O God, almighty Father, Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, who chose St. Luke, 
to reveal by his preaching and writings the mystery of your love for the poor. Grant that those who already glory in your name may persevere as one heart and one soul, and that all nations may merit to see your salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to Timothy. Beloved, Demas, enamored of the present world, deserted me and went to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is the only one with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is helpful to me in the ministry. I have sent Titicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus in Troas, the papyrus rolls, and especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You too be on guard against him, for he has strongly resisted our preaching. At my first defense, no one appeared on my behalf, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the proclamation might be completed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Word of the Lord. Your friends make known, O Lord, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Friends make known, O Lord, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Let all your works give you thanks, O Lord, and let your faithful ones bless you. Let them discourse of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. Your friends make known, O Lord, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Making known to men your might, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is a kingdom for all ages, and your dominion endures through all generations. Your friends make known, O Lord, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. The Lord is just in all his ways, and holy in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Your friends make known, O Lord, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I chose you from the world to go and bear fruit that will last, says the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord. The Lord Jesus appointed 72 disciples, whom he sent ahead of him in pairs, to every town and place he intended to visit. He said to them, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. 
So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Into whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this household. If a peaceful person lives there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you, for the laborer deserves payment. Do not move about from one house to another. Whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God is at hand for you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Today we celebrate St. Luke, the evangelist, the writer of the gospel that we hear today. One of the things, the thing that's maybe two important things we point out about St. Luke, which may be helpful for us today. The first is, well, he was not originally one of the original followers of Jesus. He came to know Jesus probably through St. Paul, who we hear in that first reading. Luke was the only one with, with St. Paul when everybody else had seemed to abandon him. It must have been a tremendous comfort. But then St. Luke was, he was a, a physician. A medical, a medical physician. And you can imagine that, you know, I think what it could speak to us today is that he really wanted to investigate and know Jesus Christ, everything about him, his entire life. So from him, from St. Luke, we know about the early life of Jesus. We know something about his childhood. We know where he was born and something about his birth. Isn't that amazing? Without him, we would not have, would not have, have written this written information about the life of Jesus. So I don't know if you ever, sometimes I go to my primary care doctor, PCP, and maybe he's, he looks at me for about two minutes and then says, okay, you look good and fine. But rather, I mean, remember when doctors, they would look at you, they would look into your eyes, they would look into your ears, they would check your reflexes, they would listen to your heart. I think Luke was like this kind of person. When it came to Jesus, he wanted to know everything about him, the details to look into the eyes and see the eyes, of, of course, the eyes of God, to be able to, that his ears would be open so that he could truly hear God's word, to listen to his heart. You know, from St. Luke, it comes to those beautiful parables, for instance, the parable of the prodigal son, which touches so many of our own hearts. The parable of the good Samaritan. He must have really, I think, related well to that, the man who saw this, this other man lying dead, and what is he, he bandages his wounds, you know? He was the first responder, <laughs> and it brings him to an inn, the, the equivalent perhaps of that day of a hospital, to care for this man, physician, somebody who really who understood the body, but didn't just stay there in kind of a scientific way. I think today, people, most doctors, they'll look at this, you know, what, they'll look at the numbers, you know, what's your blood work look like, what is this, your, your, what is this, this number and that number, but they don't necessarily look at you. They don't look at you as the person. I think what St. Luke really wanted to do is he wanted to know the person of Jesus Christ to come to encounter him. That's the first thing. That Luke wants to know everything about Jesus, and so do we. That's why those parables, that's why those, the, the life of Jesus still touches us today and continues on. St. Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles to see how the work of Christ continued through the inspiration and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church today. That's the first thing. The second is what relates to the gospel today is that Luke realized, too, that the gospel was not something simply to be read, but was to be lived. 
and that not only was it be lived, but to be proclaimed. We say the gospel of the Lord, praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Luke was an evangelist. That's what we are all called to be, especially by our baptism, to be an evangelist, to go out to bring the gospel to others. In fact, Luke was very attentive to the instructions that Jesus gave. No money bag, no sack, no sandals. Greet no one, no one along the way. Let's not get distracted by, by people we know, but to go out to proclaim Jesus. If I could share kind of a, an interesting personal story. There's one line at the very end. He says, eat what is set before you. One time I was in, I was in a seminary and I was working in downtown Houston. And they basically, they told us to go around and talk to homeless people. Okay, okay. I mean, I didn't know exactly what to say. What do you say to somebody who has nothing and how do you proclaim the gospel? But anyway, there we were, two of us. And we went up to this one, this one woman who was, she was beep bop, beep, beep bop into her little beatbox there and listening to some music. And we stopped to say hello. And immediately she starts to get out this, you know, that summer sausage. And this is the middle, this is August in Houston. You know, it's deadly hot. So you get that summer sausage in the package and she starts to open it up. But plus she has this, like, she's got snot running down her nose and she's probably some kind of cold, you know, sinus cold. And she's wiping this thing and that thing. And then it's like, okay, I'm not sure this is how this is going to go. And then she takes out this old rusty knife, not sure what garbage can she got that from, and starts cutting up the summer sausage. And this very line from the gospel today came to my mind, eat what is set before you. And I'm like, no, how could, I, how could you do this, you know? Why is the Lord asking me to do this? But sure enough, you know, we never got sick and nothing happened. But from the heart of this woman who was touched by us coming just to, to say hello and to speak to her, she says, eat what is set before you. Give. And she was just so generous out of her heart, this homeless woman, to serve those. How often did St. Paul find such great hospitality, even though sometimes he got abandoned? And, now the, and, and all the apostles... Luke reminds us to go out to proclaim the gospel of God, to use these instructions to help us so that we could be great evangelizers. The word of God may shine through us as the light of the world. Amen. We bring our prayers and petitions before our Heavenly Father. Let us pray for the church, for our Holy Father, for all of our leaders that they may bring the light and truth of the gospel to a dark and needy world. Let us pray to the Lord. Continue to pray for the Synod in Rome, that it would be led and guided by the Holy Spirit to help them to discern and listen to his voice. Let us pray to the Lord. For peace and end of violence in the Holy Land in Palestine, also in, in the Ukraine, let us pray to the Lord. For the sick, those who are suffering, be comforted uh, by the, the presence of Jesus and his healing power. And may they be restored in health and mind and body and spirit. Let us pray to the Lord. The intercession of St. Luke the Evangelist, may we personally be touched by the life of Jesus, come to know him ever more personally in our lives, and then to bring his presence and his word to those in need. Let us pray to the Lord. For our intentions, and for those joining us through Guadalupe Radio and online, let us pray to the Lord. Hear our petitions, Heavenly Father, we bring to you this day 
Answer them according to your holy will, in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, the fruit of the earth, and work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. Bless you, God. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you, fruit of the vine, a work of human hands, will become our spiritual drink. Pray, dearly beloved, that my sacrifice at yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Grant through your heavenly gifts that we may serve you in freedom of heart, we pray, O Lord, so that the offerings we make on the Feast of St. Luke may bring us healing and give us glory through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and just our duty and our salvation. Always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For you have built your church to stand firm on apostolic foundations, to be a lasting sign of your holiness on earth, and offer all humanity your heavenly teaching. Therefore, now and for ages unending with all the hosts of angels, we sing to you with all our hearts, crying out as we acclaim, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Pleni Sunceli et Terra, Gloria Tua, Hosanna in excelsis, benedictus, qui venit in nomine domini, Hosanna in excelsis. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you.
In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The mystery of faith, save us, Savior of the world. For by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Francis, our Pope, and Michael, our Bishop, and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face. Have mercy on us all, we pray that with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with Blessed Joseph, her spouse, with the Blessed Apostles, and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life and may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours, forever and ever. Amen. At the Savior's command and formed by divine teaching, we dare to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, by peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always. And suffer to the sign of peace. Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccata mundi, Miserere nobis, Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccata mundi, Miserere nobis, Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccata mundi, 
Dona nobis pacem. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be. The Lord sent out disciples to proclaim throughout the towns, the kingdom of God is at hand for you. For those unable to receive communion and those joining us online and through Guadalupe Radio, let us pray together the act of spiritual communion. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there, and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Let us pray. Grant, we pray, Almighty God, that what we have received from your holy altar may sanctify us and make us strong in the faith of the gospel which St. Luke proclaimed through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, sing to Jesus, is the scepter, is the throne. Alleluia, is the triumph, is the victory.
Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Prayer of Deliverance Almighty God and Father, we beg thee through the intercession and help of the archangels St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Celebrating the culture of life. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Hey,